The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, the, the last repeated line of that song, you alone are endless joy, so I cling to Christ. We sing that and need to pray that you would make that real to us. It has already been sung and said and prayed this morning, but I want to ask again that you would make that real to us, that it wouldn't be just words that we say, but it would be a truth that we experience know it in our heads and we experience it in in our walk in life that you are endless joy we would know that now experientially and we would know that in the future forever experientially that's that's my request of you now and knowing that seeing that truth Lord would you move us then to cling to Christ and would you use the passage before us this morning to show us some of your beauty, some of your goodness, and to draw us, and wherever we are, to draw us closer to and tighten our grip on him. We are in a bunch of different places. Lord, some of us here don't know you. Some of us here have known you forever. We're across the spectrum. Some of us are, are very cool and distant in in our communion with you, and some of us are, are very tight and very warm and, and are stirred right now. We're, we're across the spectrum. Wherever we are, would you move us closer? Cause us to cling to Christ. And move us by showing us that you're a beauty and that our joy is found in you. Towards the end, make this passage clear. Help us to think through it well and to, and to grow in rejoicing. Spirit of God, would you move in this room now? Would you own this place and own this time and own our hearts? Illumine Christ and his goodness and illumine our hearts and our need. Have your way with us, please. Clear away all distractions. Make the truth clear. Help us to receive it and rejoice in it. For Christ's glory and for the good of his people, I pray it. our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 18. For several weeks now we've been considering related topics that impact a person coming into relationship with God and then communing with God thereafter. We've seen the importance of faith, dependence on God, seen that applied in prayer, and last week we saw the opposite of faithful dependence on God, specifically dependence on confidence in one's self one's own self. Jesus was addressing just such a group of people, ones that were confident in themselves, we are told, beginning of the passage last week, confident that they, because of themselves, were righteous. That is, right in standing before God the judge, cleared of sin before him, based on what they do, or, or don't do, 
works righteousness, the idea that I am righteous, I am justified, removed of sin, clean of sin before God based on what I do, my works, works righteousness. That's where the world is. It's how it all, how the world conceives of approaching God. And with the Pharisee in Jesus' parable, that's how he thinks, how he believes. He sees himself as good because he does good. That's what he thinks. A sharp contrast with the other man in the parable, a tax collector, and with the little children in the next section, coming to Jesus, seeking him to bless them. The tax collector is broken. He's humble, grieved by his own sin, his own sinfulness. He has no confidence that his own works make him righteous before God. Quite, quite the opposite, in fact. All he can do is plead before God, eyes lowered, head down, asking him, Oh God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. Oh God, will you please look at me and will you forgive me? He, he comes to him like a little child without, without anything in his hands, just asking in simple, faithful dependence. Please, Lord, I don't deserve it. I deserve condemnation from you, but will you please give me the kingdom? Have mercy on me, forgive me. See, if one who's confident that he's right before God because he does well, and one who's confident that he's not right before God because he knows he doesn't do well, but he pleads for mercy, and Jesus says one of the two of them and only one of the two of them went home actually justified before God, the tax collector. He went home clean of sin in the eyes of God because of his humble dependence on it. We can fill in the blanks. We know the rest of the story. Because of his humble dependence not on his own works, but on the work of Christ at the cross. In faithful dependence on Christ's work at the cross, he's forgiven. That's what brings a person into the kingdom of God. And all of those issues, in one way or another, come into our passage this morning, the next section in Luke 18. Issues of, of faith and dependence on God and, and works, righteousness, that, that approach. All those issues come in. So issues from chapter 18 and chapter 17 where we've been looking at faith and dependence. And if we were to go back further, chapter 11 where a lawyer strikes up a very similar conversation with Jesus to what we're going to see today. Or we could go back to chapter 9 where Jesus taught things very similar to what he's going to say today. We've seen a lot of this before already. Luke's gathering things together. He's circling back and revisiting issues and questions and answers because these are the issues, these are the questions and the answers that are critical for the world. Th these are the core things for us to consider, to think about, for the world to hear and think about and for the church actually to hear and to kind of re-tighten our grip on These issues that have come up before, they are before us again this morning, and they all start with a question. Let me read verses 18 through 30, and then draw out three observations. This is Luke 18, beginning of verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. 
Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Luke 18. I'm going to draw three observations. Here's the first one. And they build, as you might expect, they build. And I think that, that what's at the end in the third one, the last two are a little shorter than the first one, but what's at the end in the third one kind of brings them all together and in my mind leaves us, my, in my mind, and uh, my hope is that it will leave you marveling at the goodness of God. First observation. One thing is necessary in a person to receive eternal life. One thing is necessary in a person to receive eternal life. A ruler asks Jesus a question. It doesn't tell us what he rules over, so we can't be sure. But he's obviously religious and powerful, and we find out extremely rich. Though that detail is kept from us at first, to kind of provide a punchline a little later on. But he's a community leader of some sort, and he has a question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It is the, the same question asked back in chapter 11 by the lawyer there, but here it has the little note of flattery stuck on it. Good teacher. Flattery that Jesus confronts in verse 19. And when you read that, understand Jesus is not saying, I'm not good. And he is not saying, I'm not God. Since only God is good, you shouldn't call me good. That's a mistake on your part. He's not talking about himself. His eyes are on, on the ruler, and he's trying to address something in this guy. It's not the main point, but he does say as he moves on towards the main point, essentially, you call me good because you would try to flatter me, and you know that would be pleasing to me to hear you call me good. Well, there's only one who's good. We should be trying to please him. Are you trying to please God? What was your question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's his question. He's asking about salvation, about entering the kingdom of God. Various ways we could talk about the same thing, about being saved. In the end, at the judgment, in order to be welcomed into God's presence, what do I have to do? It is a critical question. We really could say it is the question of life. The world needs to consider this question. It's a great question to ask. 
But notice how he sets it up. It's a question asked from the perspective of works righteousness, from the standpoint of what do I do? The perspective that he has is that God gives commands. This is the same thing we saw last week, that God gives, gives commands, and when I do them, I end up on the right side of the ledger, on the correct side of the ledger, and then I am approved and given eternal life, saved. So what do I have to do? What are the works? That's his mindset. And at first, Jesus plays along. Well, you know the commandments. And Jesus lists five commandments, all from the second table of the law, all from the second half that relates to how I love my neighbors myself. And surely he picks these on purpose because they would lend themselves to the type of approach the ruler is taking. Yes, I hear it. Since my youth, I have not been sexually immoral. Check. And I have not killed anyone. Check. And I have not stolen, and I have not given false witness, and I have honored my father and mother. Check, check, check. That's what he says about himself in verse 21. So far, so good, so it seems. But if we follow the flow of this discussion and, and think about it and compare it to the other gospel accounts, it actually seems that the ruler himself is not completely satisfied with the answer he just gave. If we look at Matthew's account, the ruler asks, what do I still lack? And really, the, the fact of this conversation, that the guy came to Jesus to ask him this question, indicates that he's looking for something. He, he himself feels, ah, what's missing? So Jesus, of course, Jesus looking at him, he knows something's missing also. And so it's possible that they both said something was lacking, like Matthew has it and Jesus says it here, something's lacking. It's possible that as quotations often work in the Bible and as they even work in our life, we say somebody said something, we're really just trying to indicate what they're getting at. Both the ruler and Jesus are aware of, aware of and trying to get at something. The whole world, if and as it stops and thinks, is aware of and trying to get at something. Not every person in every moment all the time, but, but consistently, the world is uniformly committed to works righteousness. Again, we talked about this last week. The world, by nature, thinks that we all can become good enough. If, if we try and if, if we apply ourselves, we can become good people, good enough for the here and now and good enough before God and good enough at the end. I, I can do that. Maybe I don't want to, but that's, I know what I would have to do to become a good person, and I can do it. The world is uniformly committed to wor works righteousness. And yet... Upon reflection, not everybody in every moment all the time, but upon reflection, very consistently, the world kind of feels like, but I'm, I'm missing something. And what's missing there is God. Committed to works righteousness, committed to this is how I be to be good, 
that does not actually connect a person to God personally and intimately, relationally. And people feel that and sense it. And there's something missing. They can't quite say what, but they know, ah, life isn't quite right. I don't have connection with something. I'm missing something. That sometimes they'll call it purpose or meaning or joy, peace. What it is is they don't know union with the one true God. The world is completely religious and missing this with God. A life of communion and of rest and of joy and forgiveness and growth in holiness towards him and growth in righteous love towards neighbor, even the difficult neighbors. People are working very hard at being good, but in our heart of hearts, when we sit down and at night by ourselves, think. The world over says, what's missing? What's missing is God, and that's because of something else. I know these commandments, and I've tried hard and have done this all since my youth, the best of us can say, but I wonder, real life with God, the sweet life of shalom, how do I get that? I don't have that. How do I get that? And if you ask Jesus about that, he'll tell you the truth. But you have to listen and think. And as an aside, if you don't want to listen and think, you can't know the truth. You have to listen and think. And Jesus will tell you. He says to this guy, one thing you lack, poverty, that's what it takes. Get rid of everything. Liquidate your assets. Become poor. That's what gets you into eternal life. Is that what he said? No. Listen and think. He did formally say something like that, but that's a statement that is indirectly going to expose the critical thing lacking. You're missing God. You're missing that because you're missing something else. And let me try to expose that. Watch. Here, listen to this. Watch this. Watch this. That's what he says to the guy. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Trade your treasures. Sell what you have and love your neighbor with it instead of yourself. And now, freed, thankfully freed from the love of money, come follow me. That would be using your wealth to store up for yourself friends in heaven, treasure in heaven. And you won't have anything on earth here except me, but you'll have me. Come follow me. That's what you should do. Did you see it there? Are you listening? Are you thinking? Jesus just pulled back the covers to show him and to show all of us the thing that's lacking. The man says, of course, you read, the man says no to that. Why? Because what he lacks 
is a heart that wants treasure in heaven, that wants heaven at any price. Even if it costs me all my wealth, all my status, my security, my comfort, and my safety. A heart that wants to follow Jesus at any price, including the price of my safe, middle-class American lifestyle. You want eternal life? Okay, it'll cost you everything, surrendered, all of it on the table. Have we not heard that before? This is just like chapter 9. Different language, same point. All of it on the table. Total dependence, full allegiance. Come, take up your cross daily and follow me. That life, dead. New life, come follow me. His, line, his answer is completely in line with what he said earlier. He gives the answer. What is lacking is the heart that sees that as a good exchange. Get rid of all of your treasure and you'll have treasure in heaven. There's the trade. Lay down this life. Come follow me. There's the trade. And what he doesn't have is a heart that says, good. And that became immediately clear to the ruler. Verse 23. When he heard these things, he became very sad. This is the point where if we're reading the story and think about this, we should say, oh, 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 oh. We could translate these words, deeply grieved. He heard it and he became deeply grieved because he was extremely rich. His great wealth has a great hold on him and has been a great God to him, a great source of pleasure, a great source of security, a great source of status and power, and to give up all of that and have nothing? To be like one of these simple disciples, like this Peter guy, or this Matthew guy here with, with nothing to their name, wandering around with Jesus, nothing but this guy here and a promise of treasure in heaven, no way, that is totally unreasonable. That is not worth it. Nope. Not going to do it. If that's the price, out loud, he says, if that's the price, I'm not buying. But he's grieved. Rather than angry or indifferent. Because... And this, guys, this is so interesting to think about this. This is, this is the human heart first kind of unfolded right here in front of our eyes. He's grieved, not angry or indifferent, because something inside of him knows Jesus is right. He knows the second table of the law, and he also knows, therefore, the first table of the law. You shall have no other gods before me. And he knows, like the whole world knows, that if there is a God, and if that God is actually God, that God would be supreme. That God would be worthy of my all. And in fact, that's why the commandment says, no other gods before me. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your all. He knows that. And he also knows that everything in him is saying, no. Uh-uh. Nope. Not worth it. Intellectually, he and we all get it. Intellectually, we get it. Is that the problem? Do you remember earlier in Luke, Jesus healed the demoniac? 
Jesus took a man who was insane out of his mind, naked, chained, bizarrely possessed by a legion of demons. And Jesus healed him and put him back in his right mind and saved him, restored him to humanity, brought him into communion with himself. And everybody in town said, yay, awesome, bless the Lord. No. It said, go away, Jesus. What? Intellectually, they see it all. They get it all in their hearts. They don't want that because that messes with my agenda. They get it, and they don't want it. The ruler gets it and doesn't want it. What he lacks is not intellectual understanding. What he lacks is a heart that says, to trade this which is passing away and is empty and is a false God for what is you, God the Father, in God the Son for me. Oh, if I could trade that, I'd, yes. He doesn't have that. Nope, nope, not there. I can't bear to give it all up. Give me the mammon instead. That's a God I trust. And he's grieved because he gets it and knows I'm walking away. And I'm walking away from this Jesus and I'm walking away from this kingdom. This is a tragedy to see the price, to hear the call, to lay all of your all before God and to love him above all things on the promise of eternal life, on the promise of the kingdom of rest and joy. To see that call with that offer and then to see this man say no and walk away as a tragedy. And he knows it himself as his world-gripped heart gets back into his luxury car in which he finds his pleasure and significance and drives away back to his mansion in which he finds his safety and comfort grieved as he realizes he's saying goodbye to the kingdom in exchange for the things of the earth. That is a tragedy. And he's deeply grieved, but not enough to do otherwise. Because he doesn't have the necessary things. The one thing necessary in us is not in him. A new heart that sees God in Jesus as worth it all. It's not in him. And that leads us to the second observation. God alone can and by sovereign grace does give the new heart that is necessary for us to be saved. God alone can, and by sovereign grace does give the new heart that is necessary for us to be saved. This man's deeply grieved, but he's not the only one grieved. Jesus is too, verse 24. It says, Jesus looked at him with sadness. It's actually the same two words, different forms, same two words used to describe the man or used to describe Jesus. 
Jesus' attitude towards those who turn away. This is the Jesus who, as we have seen, clearly teaches judgment, clearly teaches the narrow door, clearly teaches the need to repent or perish, clearly teaches wrath of God at the judgment, clearly teaches all of that. But here's his heart attitude as this man and as people in general. This goes to discussion goes to people in general. As people turn away, Jesus' heart attitude is grief. God takes no pleasure whatsoever in the death of the wicked. That's in the Bible, right here in Jesus' tears. Grieved by the lostness of the world in general and by this man in particular. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Impossible, really. That's what he says. Verse 25 is a statement about impossibility. Some people have tried to make this only a statement about something that's really, 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 really hard. And if you read things, you'll see different people saying, Oh, there was a one. There was a gate in Jerusalem that was called the Eye of the Needle, and camels could get barely through it. If they, except that there wasn't. Made up. Jesus is saying something that is impossible, and that's how the disciples heard it. They're shocked. He's saying how difficult it is. Impossible, really. The disciples thought wealth was a blessing. And it can be, of course. That's in the Bible, too. God does bless his people with wealth sometimes. But you can't work that backwards and say that everybody who has wealth is blessed. And so they were thinking, how some people thought incorrectly, he's, he's focusing here on the, initially at least, on the great danger of wealth. It is a huge snare for our hearts. Our hearts are since the fall, are disconnected from God, do not want him above all things, and are looking for something else, something else, something else, and wealth is a great big snare. A really powerful idol. It cleanly and simply and consistently stands in the way of a heart that would, that should see God as the supreme treasure and as supreme hope, as the supreme one in whom we depend because wealth seems so much like a treasure on whom we can depend. It can deliver us from everything. Wealth is a great danger. And as it grows like a gigantic weed, it chokes out. It blocks any vision of God. It is impossible, says Jesus, for the wealthy to be saved. And the comment, of course, goes on to all people. It is impossible because we are fallen in sin and we cannot make our hearts treasure something. We treasure things, just in general, we treasure things when we see them as desirable. We, we see, oh, that's good, I want that. Oh, that's good, I love that. Oh, that's good, I long for it, I value it, I care for it, because I see it as good and desirable in some, in some way. Then I, then I treasure it. We are blind, though. We are blind to the beauty of God. Ever since the fall into sin, we are blind to the beauty of God, even as it appears to us in Christ, in flesh and blood, even as it appears to us in Christ, crucified for us. Blind to that until God opens our eyes. We are uniformly blind and bound in that blindness. And wealth 
and countless other things present to us far more attractive, more plausible cause for allegiance and trust and attraction. We cannot make it otherwise. That's what depravity is. This is the human condition. Fallen in sin. We do not treasure God above all things. That's what our hearts are like. Who then can be saved, it may be asked. And if that was all there was, there would be no hope in the world. The answer would be no one. Because no, not one is righteous. Not a single one. No one can see and treasure God rightly. But God has power to save. What is impossible with man, Jesus' sentence, is possible with God. That is a critical sentence. It is not say what's tough with men. What's rare with people? What you almost never see with people? No, no. Impossible. Doesn't, can't, never. We need to be very clear on the sentence. We're going to understand how anybody enters into the kingdom of God. If we're going to understand the gospel, God's sovereign grace, the reality of fallen human condition, we're going to understand the Bible. We need to understand this sentence. Impossible with man, but, bless the Lord for but, but possible with God. This sentence is why the Bible says things like salvation is of the Lord or the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Or we should boast only in the Lord. Sentences like that in different forms are frequent in the Bible because salvation is impossible with people. Only God can and by sovereign grace does. Who can be saved? Apart from God, no one. But God saves. How? By giving this thing that is necessary. By giving the thing that's missing in all of us, by giving it by sovereign grace. Which is almost a redundant phrase. Sovereign grace. To say it's sovereign is to mean that God decides and God gives. Grace, of course, can never be earned or deserved. So it's almost redundant to say sovereign grace. But to but put those words together to be clear, it's given of God by God's decision. Grace. He gives that heart. That heart that sees him as precious and as the only hope of humankind. He can open eyes by grace, and when he opens them, they are indeed irresistibly opened, so that when the person so graced looks and sees Jesus, what he or she sees is the hope that he needs, that she needs. There's a beautiful sunset out there, and a blind person can't see it, and when the blind person is given sight, she sees. There's a beautiful Christ out there. He doesn't become beautiful. He is 
but a blind person can't see it, and a dead heart doesn't want it. And then God opens the eyes, and he is seen for what he is. The hope of humankind. The one needed. Sees Christ as good, and sees sin as sin, and as empty and meaningless. And in our context, sees wealth as a poor substitute for God, a false idol. An empty cistern that is broken and holds no water. We are captured by all manner of false idols until God sets us free and we see. He alone can do this. We cannot. It is impossible with man, only possible with God. This is what God does. And it's, it's in that sentence. And it's important for us to understand we have, we, humanity has an insurmountable problem that God then steps in to answer. He can and does by grace give what's needed. The new heart. So what do we do with that? Is our third observation. We are called to humble faith for the sake of enjoying real life. We are called to humble faith for the sake of enjoying real life. God elects, as we saw a couple weeks ago when Jesus used that word in verse 7, God opens eyes by grace. All that's true. And while it's included in a sentence like this and other sentences. The reality is that we can't see it in life. We can't see it beforehand in life. As we said a couple weeks ago, we reason backwards to it. We talked about this a few weeks back, but very briefly, we only say, I here I am today, and I have a, a heart that treasures Christ, and I've embraced Christ, therefore then I can reason backwards and know, oh, then I can see God gave me this new heart, and I can see that God, to use the word, elected me. We reason backwards. So the purpose of these doctrines, this sometimes raises some, some confusing questions in our mind, so, so then why even bother talking about it? I mean, you, you raise this stuff in a sermon and, and it gets confusing. Well, first, when it is in passages, we should talk about it. But, but the question really is, well, why does God put it in passages? And this is, this is the good part. This, I think. The purpose of doctrines like these is not somehow or another to enable us to identify and to rule in or rule out people beforehand. It's totally impossible. If, if you just think about just people in the Bible, everybody would have bet everything they had that Saul of Tarsus wanted nothing to do with Jesus at all while he was persecuting Jesus. Does, does Saul have this kind of heart that wants Jesus above all things? Once Jesus dead, and once Jesus' followers dead, yes, but doesn't want Jesus until God meets him on the road and opens his eyes. 
and it's changed. And everybody, likewise, probably the same people, previously would have put a lot of money on Judas. Judas wants Jesus until he didn't. We, we can't look, we can't, we can't predict beforehand. All we can do is look backwards. So it is, it is not here to, to help us in any way predict who's in, who's out, who's going to be in, who's going to be out. It is not at all for writing people in or out. So don't write off anybody, including yourself, in your own sin and despair and trouble. If you feel like, I, I'm lost, I'm hopeless. No, you're not. No, you're not. It's not here for anything like that. Rather, we are told about doctrines like these to encourage us. To encourage us about the way, 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 way back love of God for you. That sought you out, that chased you down through eternity to save you. And to encourage us in the here and now to talk to everybody everywhere because God does the impossible. You may find yourself standing opposite a Saul of Tarsus and say, this is impossible, impossible, impossible. Not for God. It encourages us about ourselves and encourages us as we stand in the here and now and talk to people and encounter a world that doesn't like us. We can say, I don't write off anybody because with God, all things are possible. So what, what do we do then? Well, we do like Jesus did. Here. Elsewhere. If you're speaking to people, and if and as you are hearing it, you do like the tax collector did, or like Peter and company do. Here in our passage. So what did Jesus do? He did not say, well, doesn't matter what I do, God may save you or not, I don't know. No, not at all. Jesus, knowing that with God all things are possible, shows people who Jesus is. Jesus tells people who Jesus is. Jesus warns people about sin and its consequences. Jesus promises people eternity, treasure in heaven, and reward forever and ever. Jesus lays it all out in front of people and invites them to repent and come and promises them that if they do, they will be saved. And he doesn't talk to some people. He talks to every person and says that. We, like him, call everyone everywhere just like that with these warnings and with these promises, knowing, here's the point, that, that people are going to hear that and they're going to say, that is insane, absolutely no way, that's crazy, they're going to walk away. It will seem crazy to them, unreasonable, undesirable, but to some, somewhere, somehow, God will give new hearts and open eyes and they will see it and embrace it. Who? I don't know. But just like Paul just like Paul saying, I persevere here knowing that there are people that God has preserved, some in this city, knowing that wherever I go, how will they believe unless they hear? I have to tell them. That's how we approach others. Hopeful that what is impossible for us, impossible even for them, is possible for God. 
He will give new hearts and new eyes. So we speak. And if as you hear and listen and look, even if right now as you hear and listen and look, this, this message and this, this statement that God is worth everything, this call to lay aside all of your life and follow Jesus, that's folly to the human heart until God opens our eyes. But God uses how he made us. Even to use the language, open our eyes, implies that when our eyes are open, there's something to see, and we see it. So look, and listen, and think. And if as you hear this, if as you're looking and listening and thinking, it's starting to make a little bit of sense to you, respond. Because here's the truth. Every single one of us has a problem before God. And there's only one solution. That God provided Jesus. And him crucified to pay for our sin. And if, as we were just saying, if you would see that and embrace it and trust it, you would find life. That is a promise from God to you. If you would see that and embrace it and trust it, you will find life. You are not written off. If you see it and embrace it and trust it, you will find life. And when we say find life, we have to consider the promises here in this passage. This is life. And this is what I marvel at. In some ways, I think that all of this so far is building to this piece right here because I find this marvelous. God does open eyes and change hearts, like Peter, for instance. Peter says, speaking to the rest, see, we've left our homes and followed you. That's verse 28. The response of the disciples was different than the response of the ruler. We could reason backwards and know why that is. But God has done the necessary thing in them, given them new hearts. Towards what end? And right here, I think, sometimes Christians, and maybe even people who hear this and consider it from the outside, not yet Christians, hear this and think of it as, Maybe you wouldn't use this language, but think of it kind of like a consolation prize. Or the thing you get when you donate to some charity. You give them $100 and, and they give you a pot holder that has the name of their charity on it. You know, for $200 you get the pot holder and the spatula. But you get the pot holder. You think... Oh, okay, that's nice. And it was for a good cause. So that was a good thing to do. It was the right thing to do. Yes, I'm happy that I did it. I did it voluntarily. Yes, uh-huh. But the potholder is an afterthought, and we really probably could have done without that. It's a consolation prize of sorts. Not the competition, but you understand. That's not what's going on here. There's more, and then there's more. 
Peter says, we've lost everything. We gave it all up. And Jesus says that it was worth it all. They lost their earthly lives indeed. Yep, you gave it all up. In 29, he, he outlines the different things that different people have given up, the different people have lost. Sometimes you lose your family. They ostracize you. Sometimes you lose your livelihood. For the sake of the kingdom, you turn aside from some of these things, you lose them. Yes, yes, yes. Different people, different things, different costs. What happens then, though? Last verse. We'll receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So this guy only asked about eternal life. Jesus says, yes, eternal life. But I'm telling you many more times now. Whatever was good in those things that you lost, and there is indeed good in them. Those, the, the things that we live with, the things that Jesus enumerates there, those are gifts from God given to us. There is good in them. There is enjoyment in them. There is pleasure in them. There is, there is something that is right and appropriate, and it's lost. And what Jesus says is you will receive that paid back, multiplied over now. Not literally, of course. It doesn't mean you're going to receive more parents or more houses. He means that what's good in that you will receive. The security and, and the comfort of a home, you will receive security and comfort deeper, realer, more profoundly now. The, the surrounding, the knowledge, the love of a family, you will receive that deeper, more profoundly, more real now in the family, probably the family, the church is what he has in mind. Here, now, real life. What was good in that life multiplied into the real, true life now. It is hard to believe that sometimes in the midst of the loss and the hardship, but it is promised by Jesus here and now. He calls us to come and die to self, to lay aside this life, and promises that the life you find will be here and now, better, bigger, more real, deeper, beautiful, and forever in the kingdom. That is not a consolation prize. And we need to also say, sometimes Christians think of it like this. Okay, not like a Christian, not like a consolation prize, but we think only, and this is true and good, and we should respond to God like this. Oh, thank you, Father. Thank you, God, that you have so prepared it that when I lay aside this life, I don't end up in loss and in misery. I end up in real life. That is a good thing. Thank you for that. Yes, but here's where the doctrine of election comes home to be sweet. Can you figure it out? Way, 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 way back when he chose you. He chose you Christian, to give you a life that was good, that had good in it, and then to open your eyes to see real life, and to give you that, and to give you this in the process of, in a way that would show you that was done by God for me. What a God. You did not just happen to end up with real life. 
you ended up with real life on purpose by God's decision for you to bless you and to love you in such a way and to do that in a way that shows you the goodness and the glory of his power and his love for you. He didn't just deliver it to you. He delivered it to you through the cross, through his sacrifice, through his death, through his giving up his own comfort and pleasure for the sake of you. This is about a profound God who deeply loves you and has gone out of his way to show that to you in delivering you to life now by his choice and forever and forever by his choice. See in this the glorious and sovereign grace of God for you. You believe. Why? Because of the goodness of God for you. Because of the love of God for you. Because of the suffering and the dying of Christ for you. To on purpose intentionally give you real life now in a way that exalts Christ in your heart. And to give you eternal life with him forever. His salvation is his work in you. To the end of blessing you immensely. And glorifying himself completely. That's God's intention in your life. It didn't just happen, it's on purpose. To give you real life now and forever that is Christ-centered, that is God-glorifying, that is filling and full, that gives you the heart that then gives you the thing you most want and miss, God. This is a good Christian, this should cause you to rejoice. And if you're not a Christian, do you see that all of this is laid in front of you and offered to you, yourself, right now, if you see it and embrace it in faith? Humble dependence. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Save me, and he will. All who are weary and heavy laden, if they come to me, I will save them all. Jesus says, he invites all of you who are weary and heavy laden, come and find rest with me. That's an invitation to all of you, a promise to all of you. Come and find this life. Do you see it? Respond. You will find here now life that is real and full, and you will find forever eternal life all because God has done the impossible, given you a heart that sees it and treasures it and surrenders to him. This is a good God. Let me pray. Father, I'm, I, I know that we have circled some deep water this morning and I pray that you would you would help us as a people to think and where the answers you lead us at the moment Lord would you give us rest still make clear the core make clear the goodness of Christ draw us to him deepen our faith in him Thank you for doing 
that which we needed done and couldn't accomplish. Thank you for giving us new hearts. Now, Lord, would you continue to move us to follow your decrees, to follow after you along the path of life, to walk with you and enjoy fellowship with you day by day by day. Would you enthrall our hearts with you? You are good. Thank you for saving us in a way that magnifies your goodness, not our own. Make that clear every day. Draw us after you. Thank you, Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.